0: Taste. this is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop rpgs
1: if you know your enemy and know yourself you will not fear the result of a hundred battles if you know yourself but not the enemy every victory gained you will also suffer defeat if you know neither the enemy nor yourself you will succumb in every battle sun tzu the other war
0: I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the little guys. Talking about how to utilize low CR monsters in fights against your party in a way that tries to balance everything out.
1: So what Ian's really saying is we're going to talk about the little guys and how to step on them on the way up.
0: That's not entirely (laughs) what I'm saying, but... I mean, depending on your perspective, that could be it. (laughs) Because the smaller monsters, the low CR monsters, some of them are really common. Your average, everyday, low-level cannon fodder. You're talking about, you know, your goblins and your kobolds. And then you have some of the less common ones, like your Sahagan and your Bullywugs. And what are some other good ones? Low
1: level, you're going to see a lot of your undead. So, I mean, your first yeah, encounter is Zombies are and Skeletons. Gonna... Zombies and Skellymans. And early on, depending on where you're set, a lot of wild beasts are fairly low. I mean, just having some angry woodland critters coming after you can really be enough of a challenge if you play it right.
0: Yeah, and. Now that you mentioned Woodland, a lot of your fey creatures, so pixies and sprites and nymphs and all of those sorts of creatures, they're all pretty low CR2 and things that you can run into at low level. But there comes a very delicate balancing act whenever you're creating a combat encounter for a second, third level party. It is really easy to make a fight that's too easy, that gets steamrolled. and It's also really easy to make a fight that's too hard and you end up with a tpk i have been on both ends of the spectrum
1: (laughs) i was gonna say on the campaign that i'm running currently i almost wiped out a party of first level players with it was like five kobolds they got going they kind of massed up and charged they dropped our ranger the party you know in its infinite wisdom had split itself and then the rogue was caught standing in the middle of the street had no backup and I mean, once they get going, they're going.
0: Absolutely. And so this is us going to be talking a little bit about some of the lower CR monsters that we really enjoy running, how to utilize them in a fight, what sort of tactics they're going to use to make the fight interesting, and trying our best to offer suggestions on how to balance it out to make a challenging fight that's neither going to wipe the floor with your players or nor bore the players as they wipe the floor with the monsters.
1: Nor, and this is the really tricky part, make it very obvious that a moment of Deuce Ex Machina has happened. Oh, the party's almost dead, and then suddenly Ranger Bob steps in with his plus 20 greatsword to to kind of save the day. That's generally a hokey point in storytelling, and if you've got to use it, you can... But the less you use that, the better off, in my opinion, at least.
0: Right. So the first group that we're going to be talking about tonight, we're actually taking two monsters and combining them and talking about them both at the same time because they're very similar in locations. They're very similar in tactics. And that's the goblins and the kobolds.
1: They're pretty close in stats as well. And I think a lot of that leads to the locations and the types of strategies that these creatures or characters would tend to use
0: right they tend to be in underground layers they're both small category creatures if you take the lore as it's presented by wizards they tend to be very cowardly by themselves
1: they used to be related <laughs> they used to
0: be related yes kobolds used to be goblinoids back in second edition but once you get them in a group they tend to be very vicious and able to handle a lot more and willing to handle a lot more.
1: Right. The overall catchphrase for these type of creatures is definitely cannon fodder. They're going to be on your front lines. They're going to be your shock troops. Ian said they're all about presenting in large numbers, so they're not going to do a one-on-one type fight. They're going to be there to kind of weaken and wear down your party. And at a first level, I mean, you'd have a horde of goblins or a horde of kobolds sit there right of town because in any given town, Your best fighter might be a level one or two fighter on any given day.
0: Yeah, the captain of the guard might be a third level fighter. Maybe. That would be if he's, you know, retired military, he might be a third level fighter. So one thing that I wanted to talk about for flavor purposes is talking about the layers of these creatures. If you're going into a goblin or kobold layer, they should be difficult to get into. Because they're small creatures. So if you're not a gnome or a halfling or possibly a dwarf, you're probably going to have trouble getting in there. Unless it's an instance of, say, it's a mine that has either been abandoned and they've moved in or a mine that they have come in and driven the occupants out of. So if it's a mine that humans or goliaths or orcs or someone has started building at their scale... Then it should be okay, but if it's something where the goblins or the kobolds have moved into it or have created this space for their own, they're not going to make seven-foot-high tunnels.
1: Generally not, no.
0: They're going to make three-and-a-half, four-foot-high tunnels because that's as high as they can reach. That's
1: as high as they really need, too.
0: Yeah, and they're not going to make a tunnel that's twice as tall as they are.
1: Right, and I was going to say, that said, from a predator-prey standpoint, you're not going to make your tunnel large enough that you could have an enemy able to walk- Easily get in. Exactly, and so just the mere small size of the tunnels themselves are going to be a defensive structure in their own right.
0: You know, because they are subterranean creatures, I can definitely see them moving into, say, a naturally existing cave, so it's going to have some large chambers to it but you're going to have these tight corridors between the water may be flowing through and they've chiseled out just enough where they can squeeze through and a kobold who is three feet tall at the tallest and if they turn sideways they can fit through probably about a six to eight inch wide gap they're not going to put a whole lot of effort into widening out this chamber. Absolutely not. So your Goliath may not even be able to get in.
1: Right. I mean, if you have testicles, the Goliath with his giant battle act, and you're in a tiny corridor like that, you're not going to be able to get a full swing just because the weapons are so large. Even something like a long sword or possibly even just a regular two-handed sword. Even
0: a dagger. Yeah, to a
1: point. I mean, depending on player size, yeah.
0: Because you have to have room to draw back and then thrust right? right so if you go to pull back and your elbow hits the wall you know you can only get you know three four inches of thrust on this you're not going to do a whole lot with a dagger
1: doing that unless you're bruce lee with that one inch punch you know
0: <laughs> right but we're talking about our goliath barbarian so not our monk not our monk <laughs> but yeah and that is something that they're going to take advantage of especially kobolds kobolds are natural trap makers. They are constantly making these different Rube Goldberg traps throughout their layers just in case something big tries to get in.
1: Exactly. And that whole trap making is a fundamental aspect of the kobolds. Now, I find that if you're building your campaign, then this is the type of scenario you're going to put a kobold in. A lot of the books, strangely enough, your kobolds tend to be out in the open, particularly something like Court of the Dragon Queen or something like that, where your kobolds are just kind of like, out in the streets, and that's a really terrible area for your kobolds to be. That's not where they're going to be on their own unless somebody is pushing them out there to be there already. Yeah, and kobolds aren't going to want
0: to come out and fight in the open because it doesn't play to their strengths. Their strengths are hit-and-run tactics. Their strengths are using all of these different layers of traps to soften up their enemies as they delve deeper and deeper in the hopes that they are able to repel them without actually having to fight them face to face. Now goblins on the other hand, goblins are a little more tenacious. Goblins are a little more willing to get their hands dirty in combat. The traps that goblins use are typically less intended to maim and damage. They will still do that. They still do use poison traps and then deadfalls and pit traps. But the biggest thing that they do with their traps is they're establishing traps that are going to provide the goblins with a warning system traps that are going to let the goblins know someone is coming in that doesn't know where the traps are so they're probably not friendly and we are going to set up an ambush for them once they get closer.
1: That is one thing that the wizards have posted, and as written, both creatures that I kind of disagree with. Right now, a basic kobold's a challenge rating one eighth, where a goblin's quarter. So a kobold is less intelligent. They're more bestial or animalistic as far as, I mean, stat-wise, the intelligence isn't really there. These are generally through lore, very clever creatures.
0: I would definitely give them more intelligence than Wizards does.
1: Yeah, I would give them at least a base 10 personally, because, I mean, they're going to be, you know, as clever as your standard person. But when you're trying to figure out the tactics or how to use the characters on a table, be it a player character or a monster, getting idea of what their stat block looks like will give you a lot of hints on what they're going to do. Both of these, again, ignoring intelligence because, again, the kobolds are actually um, an 8 intelligence, which we're talking for a scump level right there, versus the goblins are 10, which is average. They both have a higher dex, though. The goblins have a dex of 14, where the kobolds have a dex of 15, versus a relative strength of goblins have a strength of eight and the kobolds have a strength of seven. So these aren't as much in-your-face monsters as they are going to prefer a ranged attack. That's where their overall tactics and strength are going to be. They're not going to get their combat bonuses from walking up and hitting you with a club. They're going to shoot you with an arrow, they're going to hit you with a sling, and then they're going to retreat. Even more so the goblins, because they have the crossbow, they tend to have, again, more of that intelligence. They're really going to use that sneak attack mechanic. So they are going to attack you from the shadows, They're going to get an advantage on that tack roll. They're going to disengage because they have the nimble escape as a bonus action. And they're going to hide again.
0: And then the kobolds are going to pepper you from their little secret hidey holes. They're going to hit you from cover and dash off until they see that they've softened you up. And once they see that they've softened you up, they're going to send some of their buddies in there to get up in your face because then they get to utilize their pack tactics.
1: Exactly. And that's the other thing. Kobolds will almost never attack one-on-one because they do have pack tactics. So when they're with a buddy, they get advantage on all their attack rolls. So why give that up?
0: Absolutely. And the cool thing about pack tactics is it affects ranged attacks. So if you have your buddy standing next to the PC, his buddy with a sling, is also going to get an advantage on that attack because he has an ally within five feet. So they're going to pepper him with shots and then retreat, hit him and retreat, hit him and retreat, drawing them in, drawing them through various traps and pinch points until they reach a point where they feel like they've softened you up enough. And then they're going to come boiling out of the hive. And so you're going to end up having three or four kobolds come in. You may have like, what is it? The, there's one from, I think it's in Volo's guide. It's the, the dragon scale or the dragon shield.
1: This is the magic of D&D Beyond, which we are totally not sponsored by. They should totally sponsor us. The kobold dragon shield. Dragon shield. Okay. And that's a CR1.
0: Yeah, they're CR1, but they've got an AC of 15. And they've got the heart of the dragon, the one that lets them save on fear or paralyze effects. If it can use this ability on itself and any kobold within 30 feet of it. And if any kobold gets a benefit from that, if any kobold gets to make that roll, including the dragon shield, they end up getting advantage on their next attack roll, regardless of whether they've got their pack tactics. So this is where looking at some of the variants of the monsters really comes in. And that would be who I would send out. I would have them waiting in reserve. The regular kobolds are going to be using slings and short bows to pepper the party and then withdraw and once they get to a certain point, that's when the dragon shields are going to come out and go after them.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a perfect way to do that.
0: And maybe the regular kobolds that are making all these range attacks, they've got a kobold sorcerer with them because kobolds naturally have sorcerers. They are tied pretty strongly to arcane magic.
1: And that's because they do have that draconic lineage.
0: So they're going to have at least a few sorcerers in their tribe or in their clan. And so... It would make sense that they would have one spellcaster with these two or three other little kobolds that are going to hit them. know, they may have like a firebolt, hit them with a firebolt and then take off down the hall or maybe some status effect kind of spell, like uh, maybe an acid splash.
1: Yeah, that's kind of how I see these running. If I was building a counter, particularly for like a level two or three party with these kobolds or even higher up if we really wanted to beef them up, I wouldn't have them attack in a group less than five. As Ian said, you'd have them pepper them from the side. And then once the party starts flagging and showing somewhere, they would come up for melee with at least three. That way they still get the advance of their pack tactics. And if one drops, they can still have pack tactics while they pull back and retreat. And the entire time they're going to kite the party, they're going to hit and step back and hit and step back until they can walk the party to one of these traps or maybe walk it into a group of the dragon shields or where the sorcerers are. But we're not coming up and fighting you. It's what's known throughout history very much as Fabian tactics. So instead of meeting the enemy head on, you're poking at them and then pulling back to gain a better position. You're never taking that full engagement fight.
0: Right. And that really does play into the kobolds' strengths because they're not a very hardy race. They don't have a whole lot of hit points. They don't have a lot of the stats to really stand toe-to-toe with most of your martial classes. So they're going to want to take advantage of that range. They're going to want to take advantage of cover. And if they can break line of sight, they've got a pretty high deck score. They break line of sight, they can hide. And then they get advantage on the attack if they successfully hide. So it's all about getting advantage on those ranged attacks. That is what kobolds are hunting for
1: going back inversely talking about the goblins again it's a very similar thing but where the goblins have that nimble escape as a bonus action they too are going to do a lot of kiting but it's not so much to kite you into a trap or into a bigger party which they may do they're just going to take a sucker punch after a sucker punch after a sucker punch very rarely will they come up and fight you face to face unless they are being driven by a bigger goblin or a bigger goblinoid behind them but again if they have their way it's hit disengage hide next turn attack with advantage and then just rinse and repeat constantly
0: yeah and when it comes to goblins goblins have a natural affinity towards rats and wolves so if you encounter goblins say out in the forest they may be riding wolves or they might have some trained wolves with them and so they would send the wolves in to engage in melee to tie down those melee fighter types while they stay back in cover and attack with short bows from range.
1: That would be a possibility. I would also, again, depending on the party level, but as we start getting like level three, level four, I would have them send in the wolves kind of as a shock troop because they are the goblinoid shock troop. So just another level down. The other thing the goblins are really going to do is they're going to wait for that person to step away from the group. And if they can peel a player off of that group, they're definitely going to focus fire that one and try to really tear him down that way.
0: Yeah, they are definitely going to try and break up the cohesion of the party and draw the fighter off this way a little bit and draw the barbarian off that way a little bit. And once they get a 15, 20 foot buffer between that one party member and the rest of the party, then they're going to send three, four goblins in all at once to just swarm them and hit him with everything they got.
1: And that leads me up to a great question, Ian. And this is, personally as IDM, this is something I always have a problem with. But you've got your party at the table, they walk up, and now you've got your pack of six goblins, and they're all ready. Who do you decide gets all the hate? Like, how do you decide? You kind of want to initially send everybody towards the tank because the tank is there to be a meat shield. But that cleric sitting in the back, and that's such a good target or the wizard. And then there's that rogue who's just been an asshole all night, and you really want to shut him up. So, I mean, how do you decide who gets the goblin hate?
0: Okay, so... The way I do it is first round, if they're going before the party, they're going to attack whoever is closest. That is what I do in the first round. If some of the party has already gone, or once you get to the second round where the party has had a chance to act or react, then it's going to be a judgment call based on who they think the biggest threat is and who they can actually get to. Okay. Because they are going to act with a certain amount of self-preservation in mind. They're not going to say, oh, the wizard back there is really squishy and he hit us with this big spell, so we're going to all charge after him. And charge past the fighter and barbarian to do it. Unless you present a huge threat to them, they are not typically going to. Kill do fluffy. The th- <laughs> well, they're not typically going to do things that are going to provoke attacks of opportunity. Generally not. I now, agree. goblins in particular. Because they have their nimble escape ability, they can take the disengage action as a bonus action. They are more likely to actually abandon whoever they engaged in round one and just go straight after somebody in round two because they can bonus action to disengage and then they just beeline it. So if you end up having them attack from three or four different sides and then the wizard in the middle drops a sleep spell or something that a bunch of them resist or uses a scorching ray or something like that. Something that establishes that they are an actual magical threat. You may end up having four goblins that all decide bonus action disengage and we're going to swarm the wizard. That is a perfectly legitimate tactic. That is something that makes sense for how they would react because it is easier for them to dodge an axe than it is for them to dodge a fireball.
1: Absolutely. Particularly like a spell, like I said, if you have sleep or or something they can't really see until it pops them in the face, the wizard pulls out the little laser pointer and running it on the ground so they start chasing it, that kind of thing. And as a DM, that has been one of the harder things for me to learn over time is how to use my mobs or my enemy npcs intelligently and thematically as well so again going over things like this has always been something i've really been interested in because it's easy just to dump a bunch of minis on the table or i've actually been using gummies because i read a facebook post and my players really freaking like it and just okay we're all going to push forward and mob but to start giving them a real feel of tactics and stuff that really adds a lot to the game and story
0: and the common theme that we're gonna run into with all of the monsters that we picked tonight is that a lot of them are going to try and attack from stealth
1: yeah and that's just because they're low level they're squishy they're meant to be squishy and so they're gonna try to squeak out any kind of advantage they can. This isn't your big bag evil guy who's going to kick in your door and say, well, I'm bad. So what are you going to do about it? These are definitely like trying to harass townsfolks, trying to squeak out any extra they can for themselves, trying to build up status within their tribes or ranks or however it goes.
0: Yeah. So whenever we're talking about the goblins and the kobolds, goblins have the ability to hide as a bonus action. They're going to try and hide and take advantage of gaining advantage from attacking while hidden. Kobolds, they've got their warrens where they live as just their natural habitat. And they're going to incorporate elements into their warrens that give them that advantage, gives them that break in line of sight. They're not going to have long, straight corridors. They're going to have windy corridors. They're going to have lots of places where they can put pit traps or they can put tripwires or they can put deadfalls, especially pit traps. You can set up a pit trap, that is solid enough that a 30-pound kobold can run across the top of it and not set it off, but that the 150-pound dwarf that starts chasing him will fall into. That's one of the things that they will make full use of. That is a classic kobold trap. That is a classic kobold trap. And so both of them are going to want to take advantage of that Ambush, being able to hit someone from cover, hit someone who is unaware, minimize the risk to themselves. I mean, it's a common military tactic even today. You lay in wait for your enemy to come by and then you hit them before they know that you're there. And you just sort of hit them with this great big salvo all at once and try and take out as many of them as possible. Because as soon as they are aware that you're there, and they have a chance to get into cover and avoid your attack, then it just becomes a game of attrition.
1: Absolutely. Now, another real big difference is we've got these kobolds, we've got these goblins, they're working in a group, they're functioning well, they've got the traps. Yeah, they can really tear into a party. And if they fought down to the last man, woman, child, critter, whatever, they would be really dangerous. But the concept of self-preservation is also... If not number one, a very, very close number two. And so at that point, as soon as they've lost enough numbers that they don't have a three to one, two to one advantage, they are going to break and flee. And that is a perfectly acceptable thing to do with your attacking mobs to save your party is once they have dropped a number of these or gotten them down below a certain point of health, even if they haven't killed them, individuals might turn and run or the entire group might break and try to disappear off into the darkness however they may
0: yeah because a lot of both sentient creatures and even beasts if they're hurt they're not going to stand their ground and fight to the death it happens a lot on DD tables having the enemies stand their ground and fight to the last i tend to try my best to let them try and escape if they have a way out.
1: Noping out is a perfectly valid strategy.
0: Absolutely. And for the DMs out there, if they manage to route half or even two thirds of the creatures that come into them in a the fight, that counts as a win. They still get their experience points for that encounter. Damn straight. I get my XP. <laughs> yeah, because they have defeated the enemy defeat does not mean eradicate
1: yeah we are not always murder hovos. as much fun as that can be bloodshed's not always the ultimate goal it's just clearing the field
0: yeah absolutely that's why you know being able to prevent a combat through purely social aspects you know a couple really good persuasion checks and you completely bypass A fight with seven guys. One awesome polymorph. Or one awesome polymorph, yeah. (laughs) Any of those sorts of deals, you're still overcoming that encounter. You're still overcoming the enemies that have been thrown in front of them. They still get that experience points. That's how I run it at my table because I do use experience points and not milestones just a personal preference really
1: even a lot of the actual game manuals will say that if you've avoided combat through certain actions then you still award points as standard for the characters and that's again proper per the book but also proper for feel in my opinion Ian's opinion so our opinion's what matters done
0: (laughs) if our opinion didn't matter you wouldn't be listening exactly (laughs) We're not full of ourselves at all. No. No. So I think we've done a pretty good job of covering the kobolds and the goblins. Some of the monsters that you might throw them in as supporters for goblins, obviously the two big ones are hobgoblins and bugbears. Being the two larger, more dominant varieties of goblinoid, a lot of your goblin tribes will have a bugbear or a hobgoblin acting as a chieftain or as the dominant figure of the tribe, but a lot of them will also be subservient to, say, a Hobgoblin Legion. So a Legion may have four or five different goblin tribes subservient to them doing their bidding throughout the area. And they may have a hobgoblin that is sergeant or something who is acting as the chieftain of this tribe and directing them and making sure they're doing what they're supposed to.
1: This can change the dynamic of the attack entirely. A goblin group or a goblin pack, platoon, whatever you want to call them, acting on their own, breaking and running from a fight that's going foul is perfectly normal and acceptable because who cares? But if they are part of a larger legion or a tribe or they've got a big boss behind them, and they're more afraid of what's going to happen If they get back and have failed versus what happens to them if they fight you, they're going to be more likely to stand and fight. The kobolds generally, again, they tend to be a little more bestial per their intelligence. They are still more likely to break and flee unless there's like a nest warren or something that they're really super keen on protecting. Kobolds die young frequently. Throwing their lives in front of a moving bus to stop it from getting to something more important behind them is not unheard of as far as kobolds go.
0: And The big thing that kobolds really latch onto is chromatic dragons. Chromatic dragons will basically adopt a tribe of kobolds and build their lair behind this tribe of kobolds and use this tribe of kobolds as their built-in security system to keep adventurers out of their lair
1: right the kobolds aren't supposed to stop them they're just supposed to make a bunch of noise while they die
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're supposed to soften them up enough to where they're not really a threat anymore once they get to the dragon to give the dragon a much easier time in dispatching them
1: time to wake up put on some makeup freshen up move the treasure horde back up 10 feet or so
0: go ahead and assume their disguise of being a kobold shaman so that way whenever the party comes in they just see this kobold shaman sitting on top of Their pile of treasure and they think oh it's just another kobold and then they go in and they charge in and attack it without stopping to heal up or anything and then what do you mean 18 doesn't hit
1: that's a dirty dirty trick
0: (laughs) (laughs) and then they go in and they spend a round attacking this kobold shaman who seems to have way too many hit points and then on their turn they shape change back into the adult red dragon that they actually are
1: what do you mean the 30-foot cone of fire (laughs) <laughs> absolutely, yeah.
0: That is courtesy of our friend Tom. That is an encounter that we have discussed trying to do some time ago.
1: I could see Tom coming up with something like that. Yeah, because
0: uh, those are the kinds of crazy,
1: awesome ideas that Tom, Tom has. has. Yeah, absolutely. So again, that kind of gives you the idea: kobolds again more likely to break unless they are defending like a home or something like that. Or the goblins will break. Unless there is a big tribe behind them, and even still they may. The question to the DM is, what's the goblin going to be more afraid of? The party or the tribe in encampment back home? Because that's really going to determine, I mean, is the goblin going to fight the last man of the party, or is he, well, I can hide, so you know what, I don't want to be part of this enemy anyway, and slink off to the woods. A third option, perfectly acceptable.
0: Absolutely. And the big factor that is going to determine that is whether or not the boss is there. If their hobgoblin boss is there, or if the big powerful goblin boss is there, they are more likely to continue fighting.
1: We've all had that day at work where the boss is off and you're just like, you know what? I'm here. I'm mailing it in. I'm done.
0: (laughs) They're not going to know I am not getting paid enough (laughs) to stand my ground. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah.
1: You know what? I'll let someone with a higher AC and a higher pay scale deal with this. Oh, what? No, I I didn't see him, honest. I I have no idea where they... Oh, this bruise? No, nothing.
0: (laughs) I think that does a pretty good job of explaining the sorts of things that goblins and kobolds can be used for. Let's go ahead and move on to our next creature type that we had talked about this is the one that you were bringing to the table mephits
1: i love mephits the great thing about mephits is mephits can happen pretty much anywhere it falls in line we've we've been doing our elemental planes and we just recently covered our para elemental planes and that's where you're going to get a lot of your methods you can have like ice mephits and steam mephits mud mephits flame mephits i like these critters
0: i also really enjoy running mephits mephits are a great low level monster that you can pull out a whole bunch of them at once and do a lot of real fun little things because they're tricksters they're devious they're more of a nuisance by design than they are a threat in most cases
1: right and that's what i really enjoy about them is they tend to harass they're gonna laugh at you from behind they're going to annoy the party more than threaten to kill them outright which makes them great for like a first or second level party because you don't have to worry so much about a tpk because that's not their intent their intent is just to make your day as miserable as possible. So they are going to kind of pop in out of the shadows. They've got a fly speed. So, I mean, really early on, this is probably going to be some of the first creatures that you can see that has flight ability other than a natural beast. They've got breath weapons. So they're this like little demon looking things that are going to poke you in the eye. They're going to fly away just out of range and then point and laugh at you. And then they'll wait till you get closer and they'll run to repeat. If you get too close, they'll hit you with like a breath weapon that'll either slow you down or goop you up or freeze you in place. And then they'll just back up so they can laugh at you again. And once they're done laughing, they'll probably go on and do whatever the hell they were doing before. That is exactly them. They are just the annoying little brother of the D&D world.
0: Yeah, and they all have the ability to change their appearance a little bit where if you don't know they're there, you can't find them. So the mud method, it just looks like a puddle of mud. You know, magma method, if you're in like a forge or a volcano or something like that, they'll just hide in the lava or they're hiding the coals and you'll never know that they're there. They're able to hide themselves within their element. Now, I'm wanting to take a little bit of a step back for a minute. The fifth edition book only has six methods. If you step back to second edition, to the Planescape modules, you have 16 varieties of methods. So you have the four types for the four primary elemental planes. You've got air, earth, fire, and water methods. You've got four for the different para-elemental planes. So you've got smoke, mud, or ooze. Uh, they were originally ooze. they're now mud, magma, and ice. And then you also had one for each of the quasi-elemental planes, with a couple of exceptions. You have radiant dust, salt, lightning, mineral, ash, mist, and steam. Mist and steam both come from the quasi-elemental plane of steam. There are no Void methods. So there's no methods coming from the plane of vacuum.
1: Well, because there's nothing there, it's a vacuum. Because there's
0: nothing there. So the original purpose of methods was they were interplanar messengers. So you'd be able to summon a method using the stuff of whatever elemental plane that you chose. You bring it in, you're basically plucking a spirit consciousness out of the plane wrapping it in some of the stuff of that plane giving it a physical form and poof you have a method they would be summoned specifically for the purpose of delivering messages and whenever you were doing this the type of method you chose provided an undertone to the message you were trying to send so if you were sending a radiant method versus an ooze method you would end up with the same wording having different connotations to the message.
1: Right. And so the methods are like the golden example of that. What is it? The hostile compliant? Malicious compliance. Malicious compliance. Yeah. So if you want to imagine what a method in this case feels like, imagine it's a nice spring day. You're taking a nap in the bed and suddenly you're teleported out into the middle of a blizzard. Someone gives you a park and says, Hey, go give this letter to this guy 12 miles down the street. Shoot.
0: Not quite because methods are always loyal to the one who summons them the problem is they are super annoying to their creator which is part of the whole thing about being a method is they're supposed to be expendable you summon them to deliver a message and then you're done with them
1: that's my whole point is you get summoned out of a comfy place to a very uncomfortable often hostile to you whatever you're made of place and yeah you're loyal to the person who summoned you but you're not going to be happy about it by any stretch you're going to get the job done You're going to bitch the whole way.
0: Oh, yeah. And this is one that I learned from the guys over at the Goblin's Corner podcast. If you haven't listened to Goblin's Corner, you should do that because those guys are great. I think it was Matt was saying that there is a kind of an old joke in second edition where you joke that the message was sent via void method. So the equivalent would be like leaving the message on red. Oh, nice. (laughs) So that's saying that for people like, oh, I sent the email. It must have gotten lost. Oh, I sent it via void method.
1: That's awesome. So like I said, these methods are really neat. They're very cantankerous. They are very that malicious compliance, which makes my little heart Twitter. The other really thing I like about the methods is, again, they're not looking to kill the party, but if the party gets overzealous and attacking said mephit, you know, the paladin decides to put smite on that critical roll and just absolutely, you know, hit it for like 40 hit points or whatever. They have burst damage on death. Some of them, most of them, but
0: not all of them, not all of them. I don't think the mud mephit does. I, Think it but I, I know attack. that the ice does. I know that the magma does.
1: Ice smoke, magma dust. If the mud mephit doesn't have a death burst, I'm going to be surprised because I think yeah, mud mephit has a death burst as well. Does it? Okay. When the mephit dies, it explodes into a burst of sticky mud. Each medium or smaller creature within five feet must succeed a DC 11 Dexterity saving throw or be restrained until the end of the creature's next turn. Okay. Yeah, I think they pretty much all have a death burst, which kind of makes them where they are much better to wound and shoo away. Than to outright kill.
0: Yeah, it's that one last bit of annoyance. (laughs)
1: Absolutely.
0: It's that final middle finger. (laughs) Yes, their their final biting of the thumb, snubbing of their nose.
1: So yeah, to talk about tactics with these, these can come in swarms or they can come one-on-one or one-on-five, depending. They're not really going to charge so much in groups. Necessarily, They'll probably tend to group two or three, if that much, but not more than that. What they are going to do, they're going to be a harassing fighter where they have fly ability. They're going to swoop in. They're probably going to start with their breath weapon and hit or disable as many people as they can with that breath weapon. Swoop in with a claw attack and then use their flight action to get just out of range. And then the next turn, drop back in, claw attack, and back out. They will get some attacks of opportunity going in and out. But it's less than running through the whole party.
0: And the thing about methods is you can summon methods using the Conjure
1: Minor Elemental spell. So, if you want methods of, <laughs> you of your own, this is how you get methods of your own. This is how
0: you get methods of your own. And this would be something that I would say like hags. You know, a green hag might have some mud methods just hanging around, a druid, depending on what circle they are, might have some methods hanging around especially if they're in a location that they view as being hostile to themselves or if they're expecting trouble, because again, I keep going back to the mud method, but the mud method is one that if you're in a natural location, they're really good to use because whenever they're hiding, it's just a glob of mud. And so you can have them hiding in the flower beds outside of the hag's cottage. You can have them, you know, hiding at the base of the trees You can have them in a whole bunch of different little locations. Things like the smoke method can hide in the fireplace. It's going to hide just up the flue of the chimney. They're going to plant them in locations where, first of all, they're not going to be obvious so the party isn't going to spot them but secondly they're going to be in such innocuous locations that the party isn't going to think to look for them
1: you know who's really going to use a bunch of mud methods who's going to that really Kobold sorcerer <laughs> that would be perfect for them again that gives them an extra layer of something to fall back to it would okay here throw a method in the way instead of the kobolds themselves so that gives them a little bit more to fall back It definitely throws some work in the thing, particularly if the mud, they get that breath and they freeze everyone or they get everyone stuck in place for a round, then your kobolds can take that extra ranged attack. I mean, absolutely. I would definitely have your kobold sorcerer pop out of mud method.
0: The only problem is that Conjure minor Elemental isn't on the sorcerer spell list. Is it not? No, it is on the wizard and druid spell list, I believe. Well,
1: that is unfortunate.
0: It is a 4th level spell, Conjure minor Elementals. I
1: lied. Your Kobold Sorcerer will not. Your Kobold Wizard might. Your Kobold Sorcerer will not.
0: (laughs) Your Kobold Sorcerer might if they have a magic item that does it. That could do it, yeah. Because that is totally something that I have never done before, is give my big bad a staff of Conjure minor Elementals so that they can summon Ice Mephits. I would never do something like that, ever. So yeah, that is definitely something to keep in mind. The way that I see it, Most Mephits aren't going to have a whole lot along the lines of self-preservation compared to the other creatures that we've been talking about.
1: No, not near as much.
0: Because if they die, they just bounce back to their home plane.
1: They're done for their visit. They're
0: just energy wrapped in a package. And once the package is broken, the energy goes back.
1: So what I kind of see when the Mephits attack, particularly if they attack in a group of two or three, is the scene from Wizard of Oz where the flying monkeys come and they start pulling everybody's everybody's hair. And they're just kind of swinging, doing the crazy wavy arms above their head, trying to keep everybody off. That's the feel of the mephit. They're more of an annoyance than an actual threat. They're there to kind of pester your party. Again, I love these things. They're low level. They're a good way to get the party used to attack rolls. You know, they're not.
0: For the people who grew up reading the Harry Potter books, they're peeves, the poltergeist.
1: Absolutely. Yes, that's perfect. But it's not super threatening. You're not going to wipe out your party. These are a good way that if you're homebrewing your own campaign, you're writing up your own stuff. (laughs) These are something really good to cut your party's teeth on.
0: And I mean, I would even see things like the hags have a cauldron bubbling in their cottage and they've got steam methods hiding in the cauldron.
1: I'm thinking of the way back in the day where everybody had the Halloween like punch mixes where that was like the soda and the sherbet and it would all bubble because they throw the dry ice in there. That's exactly the picture I get with the witch's cauldron.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would be fun.
1: That being said, you could drop that in the middle of the table. Here's your witch's cauldron.
0: I think that just about does it for what we've got. We did touch on mephits a little bit when we were talking about the elemental planes, especially the elemental plane of Earth, because I think it was in the third edition manual. Of the planes mephits are described as being like vermin in the plane, akin to how rats are in a material plane city.
1: Yes. And this also kind of drives back to our para-elementals where we talked about the Plain of Steam, I believe, that it was a mephit that has set himself up as king of the area. and He doesn't like being called No, a that was
0: Plain of uh, Smoke.
1: Smoke. Okay. Yeah. And so for, for a mephit of any sort to gather that much power and influence is quite the feat. And so I really wish they would write more about that particular character because I would like to see how he managed that or what he did to get to that point
0: that would really be an interesting thing to do because he would have had to play his cards right to start accruing power and once he started accruing power he would have to hide that he's accruing it until he gets a chance to break away entirely
1: and then who's the lucky like i'm gonna summon a method and you just happen to pull him out of the deck (laughs) (laughs) like i said that'd be a really interesting thing to see so i don't know that would be a curveball i threw my party if they were higher level just for fun but like I said, the story behind that character, I would be very fascinated to see how they flesh that out.
0: Right. So let's go on to our final creature type. This was my contribution to this list, mainly because this is the one creature type that I have actually succeeded, succeeded is a strong word, that I've actually managed a TPK with, and that's Bullywugs. For those of you playing at home who are not familiar with Bullywugs, Bullywugs are amphibious bullfrog people. Not to be mistaken for grung, who are poisonous tree frog people.
1: No, if you've ever played battle frogs, those are bully
0: Yes, they tend to live in damp forests, swamps, lakes, ponds, wet caves, anywhere where they can submerge themselves periodically.
1: So now we are finding out more and more what kind of environment Ian likes setting his campaigns in.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, in my current campaign, the most recent one that is currently on hiatus because pandemic and all, the party went into a swamp. And got ambushed by Bullywugs. And I managed a TPK. Largely because they decided to spread out.
1: Yeah, that's always an issue.
0: So the cool thing about Bullywugs is they can speak with frogs and toads. That is one of their innate abilities. And so they are going to use this ability to listen into what the other frogs are quote unquote saying with their croaks. In order to locate parties that are coming through their area. And so that way they can more effectively set up ambushes.
1: Right. Very rarely will you catch a with by surprise because of this, just because they have that innate communication and draw with nature.
0: Absolutely. And it makes it very easy for them to communicate with one another while they're hidden and waiting to spring this ambush because they can just croak at each other and it just sounds like frogs. They also have an ability called Swamp Camouflage, So if they're in swampy terrain, they get advantage on their stealth checks, which is part of the reason why I decided to throw them in my swamp. Another factor that may have played into this being a TPK was that they rolled a natural 19 on their group stealth check to avoid detection.
1: Very nice, yeah.
0: I also had a banderhob hiding up a tree, which may have had something a lot to do to. with
1: it absolutely yeah
0: <laughs> so going into story time for just a minute the bander was hiding up in a tree it rolled a natural 20 on its stealth check and the fighter he was at the head of the party and the bullywugs spring their ambush i had planned on the bander dropping out of the tree and going after somebody using their shadow step ability in the second round of combat i wasn't going to use the bander in the first round of combat well the first thing he does is instead of taking a defensive position and helping his party, is he decides he's going to book it. Okay. And he books it to the tree. (laughs) And so the Banderhob, on their initiative, just slaps him with their tongue and slurps him up like spaghetti. Yum yum. And swallows him. And then he proceeds to take the next four turns trying to get out Because the Banderhob just keeps succeeding on its constitution saves anytime he takes damage from the inside. Oh, wow. So not having the fighter really did hamper the party. But it was a party of six people. And I used four Banderhob's, a Banderhob Croaker, and a Bullywug. So four CR1 quarter monsters, a CR2, and then the Banderhob, which I think is a CR4. So the Banderhob was a little bit much. But the rest of it together shouldn't have hit as hard as it did
1: right but once you start chopping up that party it becomes an issue and again that's why you always say as a dm note never split the party no the parties always want to split and
0: i'll get to the second aspect that really played against the party in a minute.
1: So again, looking at the Bullywook stat block, they've got a Strength of 12, a Dex of 12, a Constitution of 13, an Intelligence of 7, so we're going to be running a little bit more bestial, a little less intelligent, a Wisdom of 10, a Charisma of 7, but where their Strength and Dex are even with each other on par, they're as likely to come up in your face and smack you with a stick as they are to try to use a bow. Per stat block, they actually have a spear attack, and so whether they're going to throw that spear, or try to just run up and stab you with it, or try to just outright bite you, even odds on all of those, of the characters we've talked about, these are definitely more in your face. They have an armor class of 15, which is a bit higher. I think the goblins also had an armor class of 15. So again, these are going to come up. But what's really neat about these is if they're attacking from a swamp, again, they're going to get that ambush round. they're going to attack. And then if they start taking any kind of damage or if things start going sideways, they've got standing leap, which gives them a long jump up to 20 feet and a high jump up to 10 feet. So they are going to jump back into the swamp where they have that swamp camouflage. They can also breathe underwater. So they would jump into the pond. They're going to jump into the reeds. They're going to take that hide action and wait for another time to jump back out at you and get advantage on that attack.
0: And that is a standing jump. They can jump 20 feet long jump or 10 feet high jump standing without a running go. And one of the really cool things about Bullywugs is you can Be a little more vicious when you're using Bullywugs because they prefer to take prisoners rather than killing people outright.
1: And this makes them a lot of fun to play with. This lets you attack the party, kind of a way to slowly ramp up the danger with your party. So instead of just wiping the party out, yeah, you'll just take them hostage. And again, it gives them that feel of increasing danger. Your monsters are getting stronger. They're more dangerous. Instead of just killing you outright, they're going to take you. So now you have a chance to escape. So again, these make a good early level one, two, three, possibly 4 range before you start dealing with the really big, scary, evil stuff.
0: Well, I mean, as I was saying, I TPK'd a party of... Six third level characters. Well,
1: that's because you had a banger hob, and you chose not to take prisoners. If they dropped, everything- no,
0: I did end up choosing to take prisoners because I had one of my players who was playing a bard, and they just weren't feeling it. It was the player that I mentioned before who I accidentally outright killed their sorcerer in the first session, so they rolled up a bard. After that, and She wasn't feeling it, but she was wanting to get away from the bard. She just wasn't falling in love with it. And I used this as a narrative tool after the TPK because I did tell them, you're not all actually dead. I've got a plan. So basically what it was was she was picking up an Archfey-pacted, Pact of the Chain warlock with a pseudo-dragon familiar. And so it ended up being that the Bullywugs were acting on her behalf to find this group that she saw land on the island and bring them to her. And it's just that they decided to go in guns blazing. So the bullywugs raffle stomped them (laughs) and dragged their unconscious bodies in instead of the confrontation that would have been a just lead them in.
1: And that brings us to the other point. Ultimately, the party determines the encounter.
0: It does. It really does. And I played this into another group that I have that the party hasn't run into yet, there's a coven of sea hags. And the bander Hob was created by these sea hags. And so the sea hags took her old character as the price for getting the bander Hob to help her get the party to her so that they could help her get off the island. Okay, I can see that. And that's going to come back <laughs> later on because eventually they're going to have to go and talk to these hags And then there's going to be this familiar-looking tabaxi bard sitting there. And they're going to have to ask
1: themselves some hard questions. I like it. Hard questions are the best questions. Anyway,
0: enough waxing poetic on my TPK. So they have one bullywug that's going to act as a ruler, as the royal of their frog clan. And the other bullywugs are going to capture prisoners and bring them in and present them to their ruler. And the ruler is going to make a grand display of all of their bits and bobbles and things that demonstrate how grandiose they are, which are all going to be caked in mud and worn to tatters because they have no interest or knowledge on how to actually preserve any of these fine things. And if the party is clever, they can play into the vanity of the ruler and offer a tribute by their freedom and just walk
1: away. Always a good option.
0: So that's a sort of way that you can go about doing it to where a TPK with Bullywugs doesn't have to be the end of the
1: story. So, yeah, one thing we forgot to mention with the Bullywug, this is important with the Bullywugs almost as much as the goblin interaction with their tribes and clans are, is they're very much about one-upsmanship. I was telling Ian earlier, I would love to see... A Bullywug and a Fae interact, kind of that whole like Fae and Vampire, because a Bullywug is going to invite you in as a guest and then wait for you to make some sort of mistake so it can take advantage or razz you about it, showing how much better they are. Again, when you go to the Bullywug Royal, they're going to try to make this grand display so they can literally puff their chest up like a bullfrog would do. You know, look how great I am. The feel I kind of get from this is in Phantom Menace when they go to the underwater city. I forget the name of the underwater city where Jar Jar is from. And the big boss down there, Again, he had that big bullfrogish look and he had all of his retainers out and they were all in their finery and their garb. And he was upset because the people of booth thought they were better than they are and they wanted to bring them down a notch if nothing else. And so when Amidalia, you know, got down and actually asked for help and kind of humbled herself, that was enough to sway them. The same thing with the Bullywug Royal. If you can offer a tribute, try to fluff their ego, whatever that takes, they are very, very susceptible to flattery. Now, this is where you want your bard or your sorcerer to start rolling those charisma checks and just pet that ego. Just keep petting it. Just pet it. Just a little bit more. Just, just a little. And that is a way to get out with less combat or no combat involved.
0: Yeah. They want two things. They want to be flattered and they want to be feared. And if you can play into both of those, you're going to be able to walk away because they're going to be like, oh, we have cowed these mortals who have trespassed on our lands. And they will go and they will sing about how grand we are and how much we are to be feared. That is literally the monologue that's going to be going through the ruler's mind.
1: Right. And that's an absolute win for them. And so for your party, that is a non-combat win. And I'm glad we are actually able to go through most of these characters and we are actually able to point out points where... Yeah, you can fight these things toe-to-toe, but there are a lot of ways to non-combat win. So I'm kind of glad we were able to cover those today.
0: So let's go ahead and get into tactics a little bit. Okay. There are a couple of modifications that I would make to the Bullywug if you wanted to really make them annoying. The first would be to give them
1: nets. Oh, absolutely. And it fits
0: thematically with frog people that live in the swamp. It works that they would have nets. And then... Another thing would be to have them actually partying with Grung, the poisonous tree frog people, and I'll get to that in a little more detail when we get to the variants of the Bullywog, because the Grung have natural poisons, and the poisons do different things depending on the color of the Grung, but a lot of them will do things that will incapacitate or otherwise hinder their opponents so that it makes it easier easier to subdue them without killing them outright. And because they're both different types of frog people, there's a certain amount of synergy that they would have with each other thematically as
1: well. I can totally buy into that, and that makes a lot of sense. Looking at the stat block, again going back here, for your basic grong, you've got a strength of seven, a dex of 14, a con of 15, which is actually fairly beefy, especially for a CR one quarter, an int of 10, a wisdom of 11, a charisma of 10. So these are going to be more of your outside edge harassers. So you can have someone that is going to have a thrown dagger, a dart, an arrow with some sort of poison, and let the Bullywugs come up. These are also a fair bit more intelligent than your Bullywugs with a 10 versus a 7. So this could be one of those cases where each group's thinking they're using the other, which could be a fun dynamic as a DM to try to play out.
0: Yeah, reluctant allies.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: Or opportunistic allies is probably more like it. And actually, Grung do pretty well in melee, especially because they're poisonous. So merely coming into contact with their skin is enough to transfer that poison.
1: Right, but that's not going to be their innate... Oh
0: no, they're not going to forego all of their ranged stuff to just go ahead and dive in
1: most of the time. These guys are definitely rocking some finesse weapons.
0: Yeah, and because Grung is actually a playable race, there is an interesting build that I've seen, and I can't remember the details of it, but it's basically you're taking a Grung you make them a barbarian and you go through a certain collection of feats and they become the world's greatest grappler. (laughs) I like it. It's amazing. But going back to what we were talking about with the Bullywugs, they're going to attack from stealth. They're going to ambush whoever it is that they're coming after whenever possible. And they're probably going to attack in waves. So you're going to end up having the group in front of the party Pop out and attack them and get their attention and draw them in, or potentially they pop out, the party sees them, and the party turns to run away. And that's when the second group that's come in behind them pops out and boxes them in.
1: Right. And unless you're trying to kill your party, <laughs> Ian. Generally, if your Bullywogs are attacking, they'll probably use their bonus action after they've disengaged to try to get the party to disarm and give up. And that way they can take a prisoner because, again, they are more inclined and get more honor and prestige for themselves capturing people than to killing them outright. And so if they can sit there and make you look like you're in, you turn around and you see that extra group. Do you want to give up now? Okay. We'll box you around a little bit more. Do you want to give up now? And it's the scene from Robin Hood with Kevin Costner where he sits there and they're fighting and they're having the duel with the quarterstaffs across the lake. And they're always asking at the end, you know, they ask if they yield and they continue to fight if they don't. And so it's that feel with these guys.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see that. And now this is where our variants start coming in. So in the Ghosts of Saltmarsh book, there are two Bullywug variants. There's the Bullywug Croaker and the Bullywug Royal. And the Bullywug Croaker was the primary factor for my TPK. I only had one of them. They have two big abilities. The first one is a once a day thing that gives all Bullywugs within 30 feet of them, 10 temporary hit points.
1: That's really nice.
0: Considering that they've only got like 33 hit points to begin with, that 10 temporary hit points is huge. But the other one, and this is the ability because it's a three times a day ability All chosen creatures within 30 feet of them have to make a DC 12 wisdom saving throw or take 2d8 psychic damage and have disadvantage on all constitution saves until the end of the croakers next turn.
1: That is super, super beefy.
0: So what ended up happening is the croaker actually rolled last on the initiative order. The party does their thing. They break up a little bit. The croaker jumps out of where he was hiding. Actually, no, the first round he used his temp HP ability from cover and he didn't move. And so he just buffed all of the bully around him. Second turn, he jumped out because they still hadn't come back together into a solid unit. And he managed to land in such a way that I caught four people in the party with that wisdom save for psychic damage and three of them failed it. Oh, wow. And then... For whatever reason, nobody decided to attack the croaker on their entire next turn. So what does he do? He pulls off, you know, the creepy, goofy meme. I'm gonna do it again. And so he moves a little bit to catch the fifth party member, the one that was not stuck inside of the banderhob. And he manages to catch all five of them with his second croak. And I think three of them, again, failed it. And I think I had two people go down after that second 2d8 psychic damage. Oh, wow. Yeah,
1: the croaker was what killed them. Yeah, the, I mean, that, that psychic damage is generally a hard thing to shake. And it's not a real
0: challenging save. It's a DC 12. So if you have any positive to wisdom, you're doing pretty all right. And there's several classes that have proficiency on wisdom saving throws. It's just that it was a combination of the dice rolling poorly and them not focusing on what was actually the bigger threat
1: yeah and that's a hard thing for the party to try to figure out
0: and then the other one the Wog royal for starters they can ride a frog they can get a giant frog or giant toad mount and they can fight from their mount and they get advantage on melee attacks they make while on their mount to add on top of that their melee weapon attacks that they make they get to add an additional weapon damage die on all of their attacks that they make
1: that can be really you don't see it a lot but wizards added a lot to the mounted combat aspect of things and again you don't see that too terribly often but when it works oh my god it works
0: and so i would actually consider modifying this creature a little bit if you wanted to skew your combat for like a level five six party instead of the spear that it has which is a versatile 1d6 1d8 Give it a glaive or a halberd. Oh
1: my. Oh yeah. Especially with that range.
0: Yeah. So now it has reach and it's got a 2d10 plus three on the damage when it hits. And he has advantage on his melee attacks whenever he's mounted on his giant toad. I think we call that a Roomba. (laughs) And whenever he hits somebody with a melee attack, they have to make a DC 13 strength save. Or get knocked prone. That's actually part of his attack. Which getting knocked prone in melee combat against bad. a bunch of things is really bad. Yeah,
1: land down in combat the bad, okay?
0: <laughs> and then the last thing that he gets is once a day, he can issue a decree. And any Bullywog within 60 feet of him that hears him issue this decree gets advantage on their next attack.
1: I love that ability. And again, that is a good kind of turn their crowd against everybody real fast ability. That can swing a game super, super fast.
0: Yeah, that is definitely something. Give them a glaive and put them in a situation where they're face to face with this guy and they're surrounded by like, say 10, 15 bullywogs, and the bard or the paladin just gets a little too sassy talking back to the royal and he's like, nope, kill him oh yeah
1: absolutely everybody slap him down
0: (laughs) and now you have 15 bully attacking with advantage
1: right no that can ruin a day really really fast real quick
0: You know, when it comes to Bullywugs, I don't really know a whole lot of... Can't really think of a whole lot of creatures that would really be using Bullywugs. Hags, maybe. Hags. I would say probably green hags. A black
1: dragon very easily.
0: Oh, yeah. Black dragon, you know, living in the swamp. Or possibly even a green dragon if this is more of a forest pond kind of
1: group of Bullywugs. I could see Yonti using these as, you know, your first level of keep the hell away from me. An annoyance?
0: Yeah. This would definitely be a subservient Race, group. Yeah.
1: Like I said, a Yanti of some sort, or even maybe a slightly bent druid. Okay. Yeah. I mean, those are what come immediately to head as far as if I had a BBEG behind all of this, those would be my first picks. You
0: No. Know, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be, let's just go ahead and step back and subvert their whole evil alignment typing because forget making entire races evil. Let's go ahead and treat them as a dynamic cultural group. You could end up having a good aligned tribe or clan of Bullywugs.
1: You really could. And I was actually going to say you could wind up referencing Phantom Menace. You could just have, you know, a clan of Bullywugs who just don't like people walking through their swamp. All
0: right. So I think we're pretty much done. I think we've done a pretty good job.
1: Yeah, I like these. This gives us some common lower CR monsters, some ones you won't see as often. We've tried to describe how they're going to function as a group, how they're going to attack with tactics and intelligently, as well as ways for the party to either fight them toe-to-toe and wipe them all out or possibly win and get experience through non-combat or less combative means. Which are all good. And again, the party determines the encounter. If there are a bunch of murder hobos, they're going to murder hobo. If they're going to try to be more social about things, definitely an opportunity with all of these groups that we talked about, because a lot of these are either going to want to capture or take a nonviolent approach or scatter or flee. So again, these are definitely something you can bring to your table, something that people don't get to see every day. Or even if you do, you can give a lot of flavor and spice to how you decide to work with them.
0: And these are also groups that if you wanted to borrow the 4th edition minion rules, these would be great candidates for minions in higher level encounters. So taking Bullywugs, for example, if I had, let's just say we have a Hydra. We have a Hydra hiding out here in the swamp, minding its own business. The party comes across it or is sent to kill it or some such. And you have a tribe of Bullywugs that has set itself up around this hydra maybe it's an animist veneration sort of deal maybe it's they're surviving off of the carcasses that the hydra leaves some sort of relationship is there and so the bully Wugs aren't really going to want you fighting this hydra i would see using some bully Wugs as minions in a hydra fight you know you take your bog standard bully Wugs, you make them a one hit minion you scale up their attack a little bit give them a little bit of a bonus to damage you know turn the damage up one or two points per hit you give them an additional plus one or plus two to hit so it, it makes them a little bit more dangerous and a little bit more of a tactical decision of whether you focus fire the hydra or you take down the minions and if you hit them the dead you don't keep track of hit points it's just it's a simple yes no that- did you hit them yeah well then they're dead that works and then you can throw in a bullywood croaker or two On top of this, make them a two hit minion, you know, so that you have to hit them twice in order to actually kill them. But you don't keep track of any hit points. You just smack them twice and they're dead. It's that simple.
1: Yeah, I mean, that would work perfect for that scenario.
0: That's one of the few things that I know of from 4th edition that I actually really like and I'm kind of upset that it didn't make it across into 5th edition into the core rules. But that's neither here nor there (laughs) at this point. I mean, 5th edition's been out for, what, five years now?
1: Something like that, yeah.
0: It's what I do at my table. (laughs) But anyway, thank you for coming in and listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste with us today. I know we got a little bit rambly here at the end. (laughs) It's been one heck of a day off recording, so we're both starting to get a little bit loopy. And so I appreciate you sticking around and listening to us ramble. If you have any comments or suggestions or ideas that you want us to run with, please send us an email undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our twitter account at ucthomebrew i'm still doing my shakespearean insult page a day calendar inspired rp prompts six days a week they go up on the twitter account and they also get cross-posted to our instagram and facebook accounts at undercommontaste we're also on patreon patreon.com slash taste. If you would like to help support the show a little bit financially, we would greatly appreciate that.
1: And also go ahead and check our Twitter out. We do have our contest running. We just had our bard episode last week. And so if you hop on our Twitter, like, share, and then comment which bard class you would want to try out and how you you would use that bard in a scenario. We've got some really cool prizes to offer up. Uh, You can find out what we have to offer again. You'll see that all on our Twitter.
0: Yeah, that's going to be in our pin post. And make sure that you go ahead and do that because it's going to be ending real soon. So go ahead and make sure that you get in while the getting's good and get yourself a chance to win some really cool stuff.
1: Again, you can find our podcast. We're pretty much everywhere, Podbean.
0: We're on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all of the major podcast outlets.
1: So feel free to rate and review and that helps increase our visibility as well.
0: And uh, thank you again for joining us. And we'll see you next week with our first episode going into, we put up a poll to see where you guys wanted us to go first. And the winner was Mechanus, the plane of law. So we're going to be taking ourselves into the plane
1: of law next week. Awesome. Happy gaming, everyone.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at undercommontaste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at ucthomebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash taste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Crowell. Thanks again for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.